The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now, if you would, and open them to the sixth chapter of Ephesians. And this is the tenth week of our study in this sixth chapter as we examine the subject of Christian warfare. Ephesians is just a marvelous book of doctrine that explores the great truths of the eternal purposes of God. In the first chapter, we learn that God chose his people before he created the world. And his purpose in choosing them was to make them children that would exemplify the glory of his grace. In the 11th and 12th verses of the first chapter, the apostle explains that according to the good pleasure of his will, God predestined us to the praise of his glory. And in the end of the world, he intends to gather all in Christ who, who trust him into one body that will glorify him forever. And he seals each of these believers to this eternal purpose by giving them the Holy Spirit to indwell them and keep them until this end is accomplished. Now, between salvation and glory is the life of the believer. And it's a life that's lived in the frailties of human flesh. It's a life in a body that still has a sinful nature and is waiting for its final redemption. And when this redemption comes, this old nature will be removed and we become entirely sanctified in a glorified body. And though we're not yet made perfect in our bodies, still we're not to use our bodies in sinful ways. We are to struggle against the lust of our flesh so that we continually live in righteousness. And if you could see that sentence in print, you would want to underline the word struggle. Living the Christian life is a struggle. And you may very well ask, what are we struggling against? And who are we struggling against? And the answer is in this sixth chapter, as the apostle declares the enemy... And he says that we aren't struggling against physical forces, but against powers of darkness and wickedness in high places. We wrestle with a spiritual enemy and a spiritual world where we have no ability as humans to fight. We wrestle with an enemy that sows seeds of doubt, one who sows confusion. He tells lies. He attacks with false doctrine. Verse 11 says that he has many wiles. And these are his various methods of attack. He knows human nature well. He's been around since the beginning of time. And he has perfected the craftiness of his deceits. And if we are to fight these powers of darkness, we must use spiritual weapons, weapons that are supplied by God himself, weapons that are effective because they come from God. And in this sixth chapter, these are described as the armor of God. These are graces that are supplied by God. They are put on the believer. And we are encouraged to put on this armor, to put on all of it, that we might not leave any place that's vulnerable to the penetrating attacks of Satan. Now, the apostle says in verse 13 of the sixth chapter, 
Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And from this point, Paul goes on to delineate the pieces of the armor. And this is our study for the next few weeks. And you might wonder why we just don't read these verses and and go on. But like everything that Paul wrote, there is a wealth of information. There are truths that are good for strengthening the believer. And in fact, in the spiritual sense, this this studying the scriptures the way that we do is part of putting on the armor. Fighting, struggling, wrestling, and warfare, these are depicted in the New Testament as the counterpart of physical warfare that was fought in the Old Testament. Paul said that the stories and the struggles of God's covenant people in the Old Testament were recorded that we might apply them in a spiritual sense under the New Covenant. For example, in Joshua, we read of Israel fighting for possession of Canaan. And conquering Canaan is emblematic of the struggle of the believer's life against Satan. And crossing the Jordan is not so much emblematic as uh, of entering into heaven as it is of entering into the Christian life and the many battles that we fight for our sanctification and for the cause of Christ. Paul said that Christians must put on the whole armor of God to stand in these days of evil. And if we aren't equipped with the entirety of the armor, we will be defeated. Now, what is defeat for a Christian? I think it's a good question. It's certainly not to lose our salvation, but it is to have uh, our lives rendered useless for the cause of Christ, to live a life of misery and confusion, and to miss the fulfillment of the joy of our salvation. Now, we begin our study, the armor, in the order in which Paul presents it in this, this letter, in this chapter 6. And I want to mention again that the order of the text is not an indication of the ranking of the value of each part of the armor. No, the point of verse number 13 is that we are to take on the whole armor, and there is no piece that's more important than another when you consider that any vulnerable spot can cause you to fall. And verse 14 is the first part of the instructions. The first part of the verse says, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. Now if we look at this chapter, we see that Paul continues and he uh, talks about the different pieces of the armor. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And all of that starts with this. Put on, gird up your loins, rather, Put on the armor of God. Gird up your loins with the truth. Now, verse 14, then, is the first part of the instructions. And some say that this is not a description of armor, but a description of preparation for putting on the armor. Now, the belt, the sash, the girdle that a soldier wore in those days was not technically a part of his armor, but it was a part of his preparedness. And girding up the loins, that expression means 
to be prepared. Now, in the Old Testament, it was a way of saying, get ready to go. A good example of this is in the preparation of the Passover meal on the night that Israel was to leave the bondage of Egypt. They were to eat the Passover quickly because Pharaoh would be anxious to get rid of them and God would deliver them immediately. And we read in Exodus 12, verse 11, and thus shall ye eat it, that is the Passover, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In Second Kings 4, Elisha told his servant Gehazi to gird up his loins. He said, take your staff in your hand. Go quickly to the house of the Shunammite woman to recover her child who has died. Peter used this expression in 1 Peter when he said, gird up the loins of your mind. And still today, the Israelis use this expression to mean get ready, get prepared for action. Be ready for what you're about to face. And so we can make this distinction between attitude and the act of putting on the armor if we like. But the least that we can say is that the armor is not accessible and it's not effective if this isn't done first. If the soldier is tangled up with his clothing, he can't run, he can't operate, he can't fight because his clothes get in the way. Now, let me explain that just briefly. The loins, if you don't understand, the loins are, uh, that this is the area around the hips. This is the part of your body where you would wear a belt to hold up your pants. Now, in Paul's day, men didn't wear Levi's. They didn't wear suit pants as I'm wearing today with leggings in them. A soldier didn't wear the cargo type pants that you see soldiers wearing today when they go into battle. But in those days, a soldier wore a tunic. And this was a one-piece robe-type garment that slipped down over his head. And quite frankly, without all the other pieces put on, most of us would say, well, that looks like a dress. But I, I can assure you that men's clothing and women's clothing was distinguished. You could tell a man's garment from a woman's garment. But these tunics, these long tunics, would, would tend to get in the way when a man had to work or when he wanted to run, or in this case, when a soldier wanted to fight. And so before these activities, the man, the soldier, would raise these long flowing parts of his robe and he would tuck it up under the sash, under the belt that he wore around his waist. And that would keep the robe from tripping him. You wouldn't want the robe flowing in the wind when you re reached for your sword because you might get it, get the handle of the sword tangled in it and you couldn't draw it out fast enough. It might wrap around the legs and make it difficult to move quickly. The whole point of this is preparedness, being ready, being able to go forward without any impediment. And as we look at Paul's illustration here, we, we must think about, well, what is he prepare, uh, what is to be prepared? What, what is he comparing to this to? What is this sash or belt? What is this thing that holds things together to be compared? And Paul says it is truth. Gird up the loins of truth. Well, that that's fine. But what does he mean by truth? Well, there is some disagreement about it. Some say that this truth is the word of God. Some say that it's the gospel. Some say it's sincerity. Others say that it's faithfulness. And still others say it's truthfulness. And I don't think that you go too far wrong if you took any of those interpretations 
And uh, I think you won't go wrong if you combine them all. Now, since the armor is described as the armor of God, we understand that all of these are graces that are found in Jesus Christ. And one of the things the Bible says about him is that he is full of grace and truth. One key to the meaning uh, of this verse could be Isaiah 11, verse 5, which says, And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So truth may mean faithfulness. It may stand for commitment as being true to your convictions. Be convinced of what you believe, never wavering and always standing faithful in the word of God. And so in that sense, it would mean truthfulness and an element of Christian character, which means that we are not to be hypocritical. Well, I can accept that. Many good commentators relate it to the convictions of our faith. And part of the argument for this interpretation is that Paul will get to the truth of the word of God in the 17th verse, where he says the sword of the spirit is the word of God. But what I'd like to do in this message is to build a bridge between these opinions and say that truth is the entire complement of Christian doctrine. And we must be faithful to it, faithful in everything that the word of God says. We must be honest in our commitment to the word of God. We must be convinced that everything that God reveals in Scripture and is called truth is the truth. This is all truth. There is no truth but God's truth. And everything that's true came from God. Well, Paul says if you are to face the enemy and defeat him, you must be faithful to the truth. You must live in the truth. You must always be committed to the truth. Truth and Truthfulness must always be the rulers of your life. Now, many Christians are not prepared to fight because they're compromisers. They give in. They're not rigidly solid in their doctrine and they don't hold their ground. They can't defend what they believe because they aren't quite sure of what they believe. Oh, they know this much. They know that they got saved, but they don't know much more because they never got serious about getting into the battle. But Paul says you need to be prepared to fight. You're a soldier and there is no commander that wants a half-hearted, untrained soldier. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He says, be ready. Know your stuff. If someone comes and asks you a reason of the hope that is in you, he said, be ready to answer. Now, understand that that hope that is in you refers to the convictions that you hold as a Christian and those things that drive the approach of every aspect of your life. Why are you what you are? What did you get that makes you different from everyone else? This is what people want to know. Why are you content in a world that's gone wrong? Why are you separated from the world? Why don't you do what they do? What drives you? Why did you commit to such a radical change in your life? Well, what does truth do for you as regards the ability to fight spiritual warfare? Let's discuss this first. First, we will discuss the capability of truth, the capability. What value is truth in this fight? What does it do for us? Well, we could expand it to many things, obviously, 
But I want to mention two that are peculiar to truth as an armament. The first would be that truth gives confidence to the Christian. Now, a soldier must fight with confidence. If a soldier goes into battle and he's disheveled, he can't reach his sword. When he goes encumbered with his garments and they get in his way and, and hold him back, then he can't fight with confidence. And Paul said, gird this up. Get these things out of your way. Tighten up your belt so that you are immediately ready for action. Now, knowledge of and commitment to doctrine will give you confidence to face all comers. It'll give you confidence that you're ready. Now, I know there are Christians that don't want to. In fact, there are many Christians that don't want to discuss the Bible. They don't want to share their faith because they know sometime or another they'll be faced with someone who knows more than them. And nothing can give you confidence like knowing Scripture and understanding how it all fits together to produce a cohesive argument. When Jude said, it was needful for me to write unto you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, he said that because the church was attacked by false teachers who perverted the word by introducing false doctrine. And if the people weren't prepared by knowing the truth, then how would they answer and defeat the arguments of false teachers? Now, very simply put, often the devil's crowd knows more about what they believe than we do about what we believe. And we don't easily face the devil because we don't have the confidence to stand up to him. Now, maybe the problem is you're a baby Christian, or a new Christian. That's okay for now. You need time to learn. You need to become skillful in the word. Soldiers are not sent into the battle without training. So commitments must be made to learn the faith and to be sanctified and to have a good character of Jesus Christ before you can be faithful to the cause of Christ. And there is only one path to this. It's the commitment to training. I'd like to refer you to an example that I've used before. A church member came to my office several years ago and, and said, I want to know the Bible like you know the Bible. Now, I applaud anyone who wants to increase their knowledge of the word of God. And I told him there, there isn't a trick to this. You must be committed to reading and studying. Now, I suppose he thought that there was some magical silver bullet for it. And he wouldn't do this. He wouldn't commit himself to study. And so now, not only doesn't he know the Bible, but that lack of commitment wasn't even enough to keep him in the church. He wasn't girded with truth, with truthfulness, with faithfulness, with sincerity, or any of these components that are found in girding up the loins. And so what is his Christian life? It is a failure. Now, this leads me to this effect of truth, that truth confounds the enemy. Now, if you've studied church history, you know the history of Christianity is one of conflict. And I don't mean just personal conflict like we've been talking about, the uh, effects of personal Christian warfare. But I mean that there has been extreme doctrinal conflict and confusion that rocked the church. Before we even get out of the first century... The seeds of heresy were sown everywhere. In Acts 15, there was a debate in the Jerusalem church about circumcision. There were legalists in the Jerusalem church that insisted that 
Before Gentile Christians could be saved, they must be circumcised. Well, these legalists went to the Antioch church and they began to teach this heresy. And so there was confusion and there was division. And Paul and Barnabas went up to Jerusalem to get the consensus of the apostles on this error. Well, the apostles gathered to debate the question and they set the record straight. That wasn't the end of the matter. Later, Paul wrote to the Galatian church to correct them because they were caught up in this same heresy. Then later we find the doctrine of the Trinity was attacked. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ was attacked. 1 Corinthians 15 was written because uh, the Corinthians were confused about Christ's bodily resurrection. The Christological and Pauline doctrines of grace were perverted. And that still goes on today as we argue about Ephesians chapter 1 and Romans 8 and 9 over the doctrines of election and predestination. But you know something? The truth always prevails because truth will confound the enemy. We have our great confessions of faith, such as the first and second London Baptist Confessions of Faith. There is the Philadelphia Confession. There is the New Hampshire Confession. And these came from defenses of the truth. And the reason that Baptists wrote these down, wrote down great confessions of the faith, was because these are defenses of scriptural truth. And our confessions were written to help us to define what we believe about the Word of God. What is the truth? Truth confounds the enemy. The enemy can't stand in the face of truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Free from what? Well, free from sin, free from condemnation, free from punishment in hell, free from enslavement to Satan, who is the God of this world, free to serve the Father in spirit and in truth. Gird up your loins with truth to fight an effective fight. Effective warfare for Jesus Christ. Now, there is a third I may have mentioned had said we were going to talk about, too. But there is a third truth confronts our weaknesses. Now, this is very important. Truth confronts our weaknesses. Do you think that being prepared for battle doesn't go a long way towards helping us to understand why we can win? And I want you to understand that before you can put on the belt of truth, or when you put on the belt of truth, you put on Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the what? Truth. I am the life. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And he taught that the Holy Spirit is his spirit. And you put all of that together and truth equals Trinity. Who is weak when the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are with you. Well, Jesus made an interesting comment in Luke 12. The disciples were sent out to preach and they were threatened everywhere they went. And they were ignorant men, weren't they? Uh, when they preached, people wondered, how, how do these men know so much? They're not seminarians. These are Galileans. And Galilee is not a place known as a theological center. And isn't this what the Jews in Jerusalem said about Jesus when he taught? He said, how does he know all this stuff? He never sat under the teaching of rabbis. There are no prophets in Galilee. And yet they marveled at him. 
And they said, no one spoke like this man has spoken. Some said that his words were sweet and they were authoritative. They were gracious, unlike the rabbis. Well, going back to Luke 12, the disciples were weak. They were afraid. They were unlearned. And so what would they do when they were confronted with the sharp, erudite, learned scribes and Pharisees? Well, listen to Jesus. It didn't pose a problem in his mind. He says in Luke 12, 11 and 12, And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Did it matter if they were physically weak? Did it matter that they didn't know uh, everything that people thought they ought to know? No, because when they put on Christ and when they were committed to do what he told them to do, all the weaknesses melted away. See, God will supply what you need when you are committed to the cause. Now, let me mention another weakness. Do you know sometimes uh, or has this happened to you that sometimes you feel the pressure of having too much to do? How will you do everything that needs to be done? How will you do it and still do something for the Lord? Where will you find time to read the Bible? When when will you pray? And when we can be in church, how do you find time to go? When you have kids in school, they've got their soccer, they've got recreation, they've got all the activities that they want to do, all the extracurricular activities. Where are you going to get time? Activity is our weakness. But the Lord has an answer for this. Paul taught Timothy about soldiering. And he says this in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. That he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. No man... Who wants to be a soldier, who wants to serve Christ, can be tangled up with the affairs of life. And doesn't that entangling sound like forgetting to gird up the loins? Doesn't it sound like the robes that hinder the fight? So what is Paul saying? Well, he's he's telling us that nothing but Christ is to be the object of our lives. That our lives are hidden in Christ. Which, following the logic of the previous point, means that our lives are hidden in truth. Busyness is our weakness. And that prevents us from being prepared to fight. So what do we do? Well, we order our life first by the faith of Christ. And then the lesser things will never entangle us. Now remember, our priorities are to be ordered by things that are of lasting value. Christ's work is eternal work. All the other stuff isn't. And if the other stuff isn't done, what is the eternal consequence of it? Nothing. If it doesn't get done, there is no eternal consequence for it. Well, let's wind down the message with just a few more thoughts. Number two, uh, let's talk about the reliability of truth. The reliability of it. Now, since most people today think that truth is fluid... And it's relative and everybody has his own truth. The conclusion that must be drawn is that truth can never be reliable. If truth is subjective and is a product of our minds and of our thinking, then on what basis do we trust anything? 
Well, relative truth is self-defeating. And really, nobody truly lives by relative truth. Because if you don't agree to some absolutes, there is no underlying basis for law and society and living and functioning together. The surer that we are of truth, the more comfort we have that others will do what they're supposed to do, that we will do what we're supposed to do. Truth prevents chaos. Truth undergirds morality. Truth is the basis for government. Although you're probably less sure of what the government says than anything. But when the Bible says that God desires truth, this truth is based on his authority. Now, when we get down to verse number 17, we will talk about the authority of Scripture. Scripture gets its authority from God. And Scriptures are reliable because of their authority. You can trust the the concepts that you're faithful to, and you can gird your loins with them because their authority is untouchable. Let me give you two more truths about the reliability of truth. Why is our trust in our faith reliable? Well, the first reason would be truth is inspired. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now, this phrase, inspiration of God, is one word in, in the Greek, theonoustos, Theo means God, noustos means breathe. And so when you put that together, you get God breathed. The scriptures are the breath of God. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 1.21, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Uh, This verse means that God himself, God, the Holy Spirit, carried along the prophets. He, He moved them. He impelled them to write the scriptures. Have you read anywhere in scripture where a prophet said or one of the apostles said, well, I've thought really long and hard about this. I've studied all the alternatives. And finally, I came to this conclusion that I want to share with you. No, you don't read it that way. The prophet said, thus saith the Lord. And you know that scripture or that phrase is used 415 times in the Bible. Thus saith the Lord. The scriptures are reliable because the one who is truth personified is their author. Again, the scripture says that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And he is the manifestation of God. And if he is grace and truth, then his words are truth. The Christian soldier must gird himself with his truth because of sanctification. Jesus prayed to his father. He said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And this is what Christian warfare is about. It's about our sanctification. It's about our perseverance. And this verse helps us to better understand how our warfare is dependent upon God's word. Truth is our armor. We can't function or even be useful in God's service without truth. Where do I get my authority? Well, the modern version of truth is that truth comes from reason. Did you know, 300 years ago, the age of reason, better known as the Enlightenment, ushered in the foundations of relative truth. 
And it was, it was thought that truth comes from intellect and therefore faith should be dismissed. And we live in a new age of enlightenment, so I can find truth in my intellect. And even when it comes to the Bible, people will say, well, we've discovered new things about the Bible. We have separate corroborating evidence. We have new discoveries and we have reinterpreted old discoveries. Now, the Gnostic Gospels, for example, have been around for centuries. They were thoroughly rejected by the truth or by the church. But they get recycled from time to time and they get looked at again and they need to be rejected again. It's because people are not content to believe that truth is settled and that ancient applications of the scripture are correct. Now, let me caution you that if the belt you put on is not an old, worn and tested belt, then it's not the truth. We live by this mantra. If it's new, it's not true. Now, God gave the full revelation of what he wanted us to know in the 66 books of the Bible. That is the basis of all truth. And though the Bible doesn't address all things that you can learn, there is no truth that you can learn that contradicts the Bible. Now, here's what happens if, if truth is based on intellect or truth is determined by the next discovery. If we talk about science first, what we think we know about science may be wrong and a discovery may change what we thought was true. But that doesn't mean that the truth changed. It only means that at first we believed a lie. Now, science is not my concern because I'm not going to commit myself to what a, a scientist says is truth. I mean, why would I? I would be a fool to because I pick up a 25-year-old textbook. That's enough to show me that scientific knowledge changes. But in the 2,000 years since the Bible was completed and in the 1,500 years over which it was written, there has never been any change, no contradictions, and no retractions. So what was true 5,000 years ago is true today. And I can count on that without relying on blind faith, which is what the Enlightenment rejected. But why not accept it by faith when what has never changed and is always proven to be true, says that I must accept it by faith. Now, hear me out on this. God's people knew and accepted every word of Scripture as true before thousands of years proved it to be true. Why? Because God said it. Thus saith the Lord. That's enough. God is always faithful. He's always faithful to us, and so he demands that we always be faithful to him. And if we are faithful to him, we will defeat the devil's lies. Now, one thing I know for sure, eternity is coming. And there had better be truth that doesn't change, because my eternal salvation depends on truth. And if what's discovered in the next 100 years con controverts the truth that I believe today then my soul is already lost. Now, the wonderful thing about God's word is that it's preserved forever and it never changes. It is authoritative because what was truth when the Bible was recorded is the truth for all eternity. Jesus said the word is settled and it will never pass away. So I have the right authority when I have the Bible in my hand. And with confidence, I can tell any sinner it is reliable. 
If you will believe the truth of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be saved and you will be saved eternally. And then finally, truth is inerrant. Because it comes from God, there are no mistakes. Truth never misfires. God said through Isaiah, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Now, God's truth is the only reliable, infallible, inerrant entity in the entire world. It's interesting that when Abraham spoke to the rich man in hell, the man was afraid that his brothers would die and go to that awful place. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Now listen to how Jesus relates this. This is in Luke 16. Abraham said unto him, that is, to this rich man in hell, who just asked about his brothers. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And they said, nay. He said, nay, Father Abraham. But if one went to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. W. A. Criswell, an old Southern Baptist preacher who's dead and gone, dead and buried, said that Moses and the prophets is the customary way of referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Clearly, Jesus recognized the scriptures as a wholly sufficient guide for anyone legitimately seeking the truth. In reply to the rich man's argument that a resurrection from the dead would be convincing to his brethren, Abraham notes that the problem is attitude, not evidence. If they have not believed the scriptures, then they will not believe even one raised from the dead. Now, let me explain the importance of what he says here. This tells us that the word of God is more reliable than what you see with your eyes. What God says is more reliable than what you can witness with your eyes. Now, Peter wrote this same thing in the second letter. If I can take you back to the quote from Peter uh, concerning the inspiration of Scripture, this is the part, part of what we read a moment ago. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, just before that, Peter referred to the glory of Christ in the transfiguration. He and James and John were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration. And he said, we didn't come to the faith because we believe fables that somebody made up. We saw the Lord transfigured. In 2 Peter 1 verse 16, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now listen to John as he refers to the same incident. This is John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So they're eyewitnesses. They saw it. They testified to it. And if you want to read in 1 John, John says we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. And now listen to how Peter follows this up in the 19th verse. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well if ye take heed. Now you see the truth of God's word. The truth of prophecy is surer than what you see with your eyes. God's word is more reliable than your personal experience. It's more reliable than your intellect. And if you commit to it and you're true to it, if you remain faithful to it and you are trustworthy, you will defeat the devil. And so in a world that says there's nothing sure, there's nothing unchanging, there's nothing in which you can place complete confidence, I can tell you that place is God's word. Jesus is truth. He says, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. So looking at this, trying to explain the meaning of the verse, if we look at verse 14 and we say, well, that means truthfulness and faithfulness, then we can be assured that the word of God will produce those qualities in us. And if the word makes us like Christ, then we will always be truthful and faithful. When you gird up your loins with truth, you rise, you go out, you face the enemy with full confidence and you will prevail. So that's first. Before you march, before you go out to the battle, be prepared. As the Lord himself, make righteousness your belt. Have truthfulness as your belt. Make faithfulness the attitude of the way that you put on each piece of the armor. And this is the method that God gives to give us confidence that the battle is ours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and thank you for the word of God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, who is truth. And the word of God stands upon the foundation of the fact that he spoke it. Thus saith the Lord. Father, I pray that we would gird up our loins with this truth. Whether we want to speak of truthfulness or of faithfulness or of sincerity, whether it's commitment, we do need all of these things. And, of course, all of it, it's built upon the truth of the word of God. We can be faithful and true to what you've said because we know it's never going to change. We can commit ourselves to it. Lord, I pray that your people would want to learn the word of God and listen to you as you speak through the word. And we would take this word and apply it to our lives. And we would have this great Christian characters that we always stand upon this truth. We're always faithful to it. We're never hypocritical in what we do because we believe the word of God should mold and shape every area of our lives. Lord, we pray that you would be with your people. We thank you for each and every one of them. We thank you for the membership of the Berean Baptist Church and how through these many, many weeks of being out of church that People can become weak. They can fall by the wayside. But I pray that you would encourage each and every one. May they listen to, the, to these messages and hopefully to other good messages and read the word of God and 
draw their strength from that and keep their eyes on the day when we can be together again. We thank you, Lord, for all these things. Bless us. Be with us. And we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I'd like to give you a final word of benediction. And this will come from Psalm uh, 25. In Psalm 25, this is a great psalm about trust and truth. And I just want to read the first part of it. Psalm 25, verse number 1 says, Unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in thee. Let me not be ashamed. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. And that's what we're discussing, isn't it? Christian warfare. Let not mine enemies triumph over me. Yea, let none that wait on thee be ashamed. Let them be ashamed which transgress without cause. Show me thy ways, O Lord. Teach me thy paths. Lead me in thy truth. And teach me. For thou art the God of my salvation. On thee do I wait all the day. Important words from the scriptures. Let's always trust God. Have truth as the girdle of our loins. We hope to see you next time. God bless you. Be safe. And we hope the next service will be in person. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.